octopi or octopuses. <laughs> so octopus is a, a Greek rooted word. So the reason why people say octopi is because that's like a Latin. Most things are pluralized in Latin. But because it's Greek rooted, it's technically incorrect. But because of widespread misusage, phi is, you know, I guess, correct. And if you want to be Got super it. geeky, uh, the correct Greek pluralization is octopodes. <laughs> wow. That's like, a, that's like a secret handshake type of situation. Yes. Welcome, friends, to Obviously the Future, the show that explores the massive trends that will shape our world in conversation with the trailblazers, the nonconformists, and the hidden experts who are building tomorrow, today. Hi, everyone. We are excited to be on the Obviously the Future podcast today. We have an amazing guest with us named Warren Carlisle. Warren is the founder and CEO of OctoNation, the largest fan club devoted to octopuses. It's now a million fans strong. And he's going to tell us about why he founded OctoNation, how he goes about building brands and community online, and his interesting story of growing up neurodivergent and learning how to play the game. Tune in. Can you just give us a description of OctoNation? What is it? Who does it serve? So OctoNation is the largest octopus fan club. We're a nonprofit organization that inspires wonder of the ocean by educating the world about octopuses. And our vision is to become a global leader in wildlife education, research, and conservation. And we do that by having a massive reach on social media. We create educational programming that really is entertaining. It's um, really easy to understand. So we're not overly sciencey whatsoever. I want somebody to be able to read a post on Octonation and to immediately like be sitting down and almost be like befuddled and be and, and tell their friend, hey, did you know that an octopus had a tongue like a cat? <laughs> did you know that octopuses give themselves manicures? It's like, so you start getting into them, you start coming up with all these different ways to talk about them. And you're just like, this is the coolest creature. Like, how have I not considered, at least considered, the animal before and nice. so we've grown to over a million members we have tons of of celebrity support from michael b jordan uh, buster rhymes is a follower of ours joe rogan has mentioned us on his podcast a lot andrew huberman wears this shirt all the time if you just go to his instagram you can see it he's big into science communication and he understands how octonation is kind of like that next level science communication channel and so we all kind of support each other once we find each other we're like i see what you're doing i see the impact that you can have and we try to support each other so we're nice. kind of building that network out but how do you get into this what what brought you into the world of octopuses yeah so i it started when i was seven when i was seven i very like neurodivergent kid adhd i had a really bad stuttering issue almost to the point where like i couldn't talk and we went to the aquarium when I was seven and I saw an octopus for the first time. And I remember it being the, the weirdest thing that I'd ever seen in my life, like seeing all of its suckers move. When I was looking at the octopus, I was like, oh, like there's something going on in there. That's, that's very like, it's cognizant. Like it's aware of what's going on. It's looking at me and considering me just as much as I'm considering it. I have to learn about this thing. And so I went to the library and asked the librarian, I was like, do you have any books on octopus? And she said, no. And I was like, that's strange. Like, that's weird. And so then I asked my mom, you know, like a dog with a bone. I was like, hey, can we go to the library? I want to, I want to research this animal. 
And I went there and there were really no books for children about the octopus. There were some encyclopedias that talked about maybe like the giant Pacific octopus, but there was really no resources for me. And as like a, a kid that is just like, when I have an open loop with something, I need to close this loop. And so I went through my whole life kind of um, enamored with the fact that this animal that's been on this planet since before dinosaurs didn't really have that much education around it. As I started getting older, I found the majority of the education was behind paywalls that I didn't have access to. When people would ask me, what's your favorite animal? I'd say the octopus. An inflection point for the, for like to go from the octopus interest to the fan club. I have this weird education, you know, loop where when I was in middle school, I figured I'd join the band and because I got obsessed with music like that. I have these massive obsessions where I like want to learn everything about it. And so I chose the saxophone and I immediately started practicing like six hours a day, like a freak show. Like I was just like immediately playing like high, like college level repertoire after my first year thought that I wanted to be a classical saxophone performance major. And so studied all of the music, bought CDs when that was the thing, and started trying to mimic sounds of, of some of the best classical saxophone players in the world and got a full ride scholarship, but realized after I got there that saxophone for me was more of a meditative thing. It wasn't something that I really was going to do full time. After I got to college, I was just like, oh, I'm away from my family. I can do whatever I want. Why, you know, I, this was a means to an end, but yeah. I can really do whatever I want. And so I ended up dropping out. And that's when my mom unfortunately got diagnosed with cancer and passed away very shortly after she got breast cancer. Um, it was in late stages. She immediately went into hospice, passed away. And I found myself in this place where I was just like, I don't know what to do with my life. Like I'm having a crisis. And so I, I go to the bookstore where any ADHD neurodivergent kid would go. And I start walking around thinking like, what do I want to do like with my life? I could do anything. And I start walking down the, the a magazine aisle and I pick up fashion magazines. And I'm like, you know what? I want to be a studio manager. I want to work as an intern for a celebrity fashion photographer. That's how it started. And so I go and I lay out all these fashion magazines. I start strategically adding these celebrity fashion photographers on Instagram, reaching out and saying, hey, this is how I could add value to your life. I could make sure that you're getting behind the scenes content. I could make sure that you're building your brand alongside the talent. I just made like this huge value proposition. And most of them said, yes. Most of them said, when can you be here? That sounds great. And so I chose to work with this guy who was a, a celebrity fashion photographer and as I was learning the, the industry and learning how fashion companies reverse engineer relevancy with cloth, like they, they develop whole worlds, whole lifestyles, I became really interested in how are they taking something like cloth and having so much perceived value if it's this, but not this. And so I was like, I don't really care about clothes, but I care about this mechanism. I care about this game, the system. And so I was like, what if I applied that to something that I loved? You know, you take influencer marketing where they're, they're using Hugh Jackman as a global brand ambassador for Mont Blanc. You know, how would that, how would that come across if I thought about it in terms of me trying to make the octopus, which is like, I can kind of come back to my love affair of, of that animal. And then a book came out, Soul of an Octopus by Cy Montgomery in 2015. And in the first three pages, she says, you're probably wondering why the octopus isn't more of a famous animal. People have always perceived it as monster as it's it's just never really had a good thing out there that made it what it could be. 
And I read that and I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be the octopus's PR agent. (laughs) There's some things that are really important here that first you went to college Mm -hmm. and then you dropped out after a, a year. Yeah. So you were only there a year and then you had an idea and followed all those celebrities on Instagram and Mm -hmm. clearly they saw that you could add value for them, that you like cracked that system. Yeah. And, and then invited you to New York and you were able to support yourself financially. Are there things from that journey or that process that you think could be replicated by anyone? Or do you think that that's a more common pathway potentially after my mom passed away i saw a triple board certified psychoanalyst (laughs) who really helped me understand psychology helped me understand ego states helped me understand all of these different things and i would say that the biggest thing that for me was understanding the game or like kind of like what people want and so if you want to do something and there's somebody else that's already doing it how can you mentor or how can you provide value to that person or that organization or that thing in a way that gets you close to them? And also there's like this unmistakable value that you're giving them. I knew that when I reached out to these celebrity fashion photographers, that what I was offering them was a dream. What I've heard from most people is they think that there's so many people that are reaching out to these celebrity fashion photographers. They must've been so busy and they must've, there's not, there's not people that are reaching out proactive they're they're reactive right they're like tell me what to do and i'll do it not like okay what's the opportunity here and how can i add value to to a busy person drawn to a passion too back then celebrity fashion photographers they they weren't worried about building their brand they were hired by these big time agencies and they were just brought in that there was no factor I mean, there was like from a brand reputation standpoint, but not like a social media. No one cared how many followers you had because you were represented by a big agency. And so they weren't really building their brand alongside of the talent because they didn't think they needed to. And I saw that in the future, social media and and vanity metrics like followings were going to be a big indicator on whether or not somebody wanted to work because it meant that they were driving enough attention and interest to be desirable in the marketplace. And I say vanity metrics because I know that that's just a factor of human nature is that we really like it when people have big followings, big numbers, a lot of attention. We're, we're very curious as to what, why can I do that? How, how do I do that? How do I get more attention? Everybody wants to be the person in the classroom who, you know, is, is seen or at least respected. So is that what you uncovered when you said you went into the fashion photography space and what was interesting to you is not clothing, but how clothing can have perceived value or not and you wanted to uncover that system what is the system what did you uncover about the system was it that it's that people just desire social proof in some regards or what if you had to boil down what was the secret to the system that you uncovered and wanted to do within the world of octopuses what was it so i realized that it's all manufactured relevancy you know for the most part it's all made up. You have this concept, you have a piece of clothing and depending on who you associate that clothing with, what campaigns you have that clothing in, what socioeconomic group you're catering to. Like to me, I say, I keep saying game all the time because it's kind of fun for me to kind of figure out, okay, what game is being played here? What power dynamic is happening here? What campaigns are catering to certain communities? What do people need to hear? You know, what makes, and all of, all of that kind of goes into the methodology that I created later on, which is called the seven C's of building a fanatical online community. 
And all of these things kind of need to be answered for to manufacture relevancy. And I don't want to say manufacture in, in like a like fake sense or wow, this is all, you know, purely vanity because you can use this for good. And I found myself in New York when I was there and working for these fashion companies. And I was like, to what end? Like, to, so we can sell more tank tops? <laughs> like that, that did not excite me whatsoever. I thought if I could take this information that people are so, you know, feverish about, about the way they perceive, like the way they put on clothes and, and are perceived to the world, then how would I focus in on something that matters to me, which is an animal in the ocean that literally, you know, has been not forgotten, but perceived as this malicious, weird, slimy, we shouldn't really care about it, and yet has survived all the world's mass extinctive events and is thriving in our oceans. And yet still to this day, I just felt like it was, again, that, that neurodivergent ADHD thing where I was just like, I have to, I have to close this loop. I have to solve this problem because to me, it makes zero sense why, why people wouldn't choose to focus in. And as I started looking at like, oh, how has the media programmed us to only care about animals that are on the brink of extinction? Well, if you have the TV and you only have a certain amount of time, you're only going to focus on certain animals or areas of the population that you can like scream to the rafters that it's going to be over for them. But then I thought, but they don't really have an ecological impact. I was like, but people, that's not sexy. People don't want to hear that. So in yeah. my head, I'm having all these conversations. Did you ever, did the cynical thought ever cross your mind that maybe it, the fact that it thrives in our oceans and the fact that it continues to thrive is yeah. in at least part because it's flew under the radar of our, like the attention of humans is itself a disease. And if, if too many people focus on it, then they'll find some use for it. And like the octopus blood will somehow become a prized resources. <laughs> I don't know. I just think humans I, in, in I so I mean, many ways I... are terrible for so many animals. Luckily, I'm medicated now. So the depression and the nihilism and the like, I don't really have those thoughts. I have like, oh, I, I have a dopamine deficiency. Like yeah. I, everything is going to be okay. So I always yeah. like to tell people I'm chemically satiated in the in the realm of like nihilism. Like I'm I'm good. I now I'm like the biggest optimist on the planet. It's just people need to hear something different because what's working, what's working now isn't what it's going to take in order to inform like everything that's going on. I feel like there's just, again, going back to education, the, our educational system is broken and we really need to figure out how to not only make it better, but how to make it interesting and entertaining and fun for kids growing up. Because as of right now, it's not fun. It's not, it's, it hasn't changed along with what's going on in the world today. And I guess that's a bigger kind of aim for me to solve later on. But first, I'm like my game right now and my interest is how do we make this creature considered one of the most iconic creatures in the ocean where maybe people are introduced to the ocean at an earlier age through learning about all the different things that an octopus can do and thus creating a sustainable relationship to the ocean. I love that the sentence on the front of your webpage, it is like Octonation inspires wonder of the oceans by educating the world about octopuses. Like you're very yeah. specific about your mission, which is much larger than just the octopus, but that you have to find a wedge in to inspire. Yeah, because the ocean is such a big, the ocean is such a big place. And I think that's a huge issue that people, when you're talking about creating fandoms or creating a fanatical community, a lot of times people want to start off with like Nike without Nike's marketing budget. Like 
they want to just do it. Like they want a marketing slogan like that. But what they don't realize is that you're alienating huge sections of the community by maybe not everyone can do it. Maybe not everyone has the marketing budget to get to that point. So if you were to create a competitor, like where would you start and what sport would you start at? And what socioeconomic group would you start at? Because you can't start like unless you have tons and tons of cash. But I think with Octonation, the reason, you know, we inspire Wonder of the Ocean by educating the world about octopuses is there was this story where a parent reached out to me and said, hey, I just want to let you know that I've been following Octonation for about three or four months. And I watch it with my daughter every single night before she goes to bed. And we were at a fast food restaurant. And when she went to go throw something away, she said, where do I throw it away so that it doesn't hurt the octopus? That's what she could say. We didn't do that in a way that scared her. We didn't do that in a way that frightened her. We didn't show her massive amounts of pollution to get her to make that decision. We didn't show her like anything but wonder of just all these different species and the fact that they have different superpowers. And in three months, she she got that interest enough to create a, a sustainable relationship with the ocean that made her make a conscious decision to say, what do I do so that th it doesn't hurt this thing? And I was like, if I could replicate that like if i can create that sustainability from a young age that's not rooted in anger fear which is why you'll see we never talk about pollution there's a time and there's a place we never talk about animal rights and things like that there's a time and there's a place people will make their own conscious decision to protect the things again go back to jacques Cousteau, the things that they love but first you have to create and inspire that wonder you can't then backhandedly say, well, if you love this, then you wouldn't do this. It's like, that's called an abusive, emotionally abusive relationship. Well, if you love this, then look at the ocean. If you love this, then look at the thing that you love is being destroyed. And to me, I was a sensitive kid. And when I saw that imagery, I shut down and was just like, why is this happening? And this doesn't make any sense to me. And I didn't have, I couldn't do anything. And so I felt helpless as a kid. And I was like, oh, there's a time and there's a place. I can't do anything right now and that needs to be okay. But soon when I get older, maybe I'll be able to make a difference. But most kids, they don't have the brain. They just think it's all, all over and they get really nihilistic really early on. They lose their connection to the ocean and they go, it's too big and we're all just screwed. And yeah, well, that's, that's the, the depression yeah. rates among young, among young kids are increasing, right? And they maybe yeah. they feel powerless and it's you know, easy to feel powerless when you have this attention graph on TikTok or whatever, that if you if you like turtles with straws in the nose, if you like, you're going to get fed an algorithm that just that proves that the world is, is pretty much on fire. And that's not conducive to creating a sustainable relationship to the ocean. In society, we have this whole traditional higher ed apparatus with a lot of hierarchy and a tenure system. But you brought together the leading scientists from around the world who study octopuses yeah. and are helping pioneer research with like National Geographic and others to push the boundaries of science. So it's not just, oh, we're teaching young kids about the different species. That was actually a really hard, a really hard pill to swallow in the beginning, too. The fact that academics wanted literally nothing to do with me because I didn't have a degree. They thought, who are you and why, what are you doing? And how do you think that you're qualified to do what you're doing? And I don't want to be associated with that until you figure out how to, I don't know, get qualified. And so if you think of me, a classical saxophone performance ma major neurodivergent kid who has a passion for the octopus and just wants to work 
with the world. Being very naive, I thought I would be embraced by this group of people. And I actually wasn't. And so in the beginning, when I first started, I remember reaching out to a lot of them and they declined my interviews. They declined wanting to edit writing that I had done. They declined all this different stuff. And then I figured, okay, this is not working. I need to figure out another way. And so I, I needed to recruit talent in the space. And so what I did was I found who's now my scientific advisor, Dr. Chelsea Bennis, who is known as the Octo Girl, a very charismatic scientist. And she loved what we were doing. And she saw through all the comments we were receiving because we received hundreds of comments on our social media. And the comments say, I've never thought about this before. I've never considered this before. This is the first time I'm hearing about this species. And I was showing her like, hey, there's some real work that we can do here. There's a lot of ocean literacy we can teach. And she signed up. And through her, I was able to kind of work my way into the academic institutions through Chelsea going in and kind of like being my, my voice there. So when they saw that, they were just like, okay, some of them still said, eh, we don't want anything to do with it. They just weren't, they didn't catch the vision. But over time, I've been doing it again since, I think I founded it in 2015. I founded the nonprofit in 2019. It's, we're about eight years. So now it's taken that long to finally break through and to get to a point where I'm like the gold standard. Isn't it funny to note that the celebrity fashion photographers were so open and welcoming to a cold reach out yeah. when the passion was evident, but yeah. academics were not. And I'm not sure what the implications are, but it seems to me to be somewhat strong evidence in favor of why to not be bullish around the future of higher education and, and eight, what that looks eight like. Eight years, eight years of time. I've now, with my brand management agency, I've talked to a lot of academics and I've consulted them on their social media accounts. And so I'm like, oh, I understand. You're really scared that the institution is going to see something that you've posted on social media and fire you. So they're afraid that they're going to create like a short for, at their institution that somehow goes viral for all the wrong reasons because they're human and this has happened and they lose everything. We've seen that with Jordan Peterson, but that's like a prime example of you create social media, you write a book that's anti or not, you're not checking in with a higher institution and then you're banished. So it's the same thing with even people that are in the lower fields. They think I'm going to stay away from social media and I'm going to toe the line so that I don't have a bullseye on me and that I can just do my work. They yeah. want to be in their lab and they want to do the research and they want to bring that research to other researchers. So when you get into social media and that conversation, now that I'm on the other side of it, I'm like, oh, that's completely valid. But yeah, also the reward isn't worth the risk for them. A little ironic because the whole tenure system is supposed to protect academics from the mob that yeah. they can start doing research without worrying about their job security that pushes the boundaries. And now it's like almost the opposite, right? Is that, that they're more afraid of the institutions and yeah. and don't feel that they're protecting them when they do speak out. So now with Octonation, you've found a formula of success and you've cracked that game. You now work with other people when you see an opportunity or, or have a connection to help them create a similar platform. And one of the refrains that's been stuck in my mind since we met is facts, not fuckery. Yeah. <laughs> Which comes from your client, Emily D. Baker. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you made the leap to working with these creators and the advice you give them and, and what inspires you about what you're building together. 
Yeah. So I remember when I was building Octonation, a lot of the people that I worked with were just like, yeah, of course it works for you. And you hear this from everybody, no matter how successful you are, what you do, of course you can do it. You're this, of course you did it. You had that. And so that kind of got in my head and I like to prove myself. And I was like, no, I could do this with anything. I started reaching out to some of my friends while I was still in New York. And I was just like, hey, you're a model. Why don't we do direct consumer? Instead of you working with your agency, why don't you go free agent? And why don't we build a brand around you? Then I started working with my artist friends. And I I plugged in this, this thing where it was just like, okay, again, going back to the seven C's of building a fanatical community. The first one is clarity. And so with clarity, it's like, who is your community for and what is your community about? And I feel like the more vague or subjective those two things are, the more there's an opportunity for people to be like, I don't know what you do. And I don't know how to recommend what you do to somebody that I know because it's too broad. So the example that I like to use is one of the people that I used to work with that initially came to me and she's like, I can help anybody with chronic pain. And I said, that's too broad. And I was like, you're going to, and in that community, there's going to be a lot of infighting between those members, because what you're saying is that people that have lupus, people that have Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, people that have cancer that are going through chemotherapy, they all have the same sort of pain. And I was like, and so no one's going to genuinely feel like you're talking to them. And so I got her story and she's like, I've suffered chronic debilitating migraine ever since I was two. And this is where this stems from. And I was like, okay, well then how about you help women who suffer chronic debilitating migraine get more stuff done throughout the day? And that's just the thing that we're going to lead with. And so then you get into all the other seven C's and you start being like, okay, who currently owns this attention in the space? And then you're like, oh, the Association of Migraine Disorders or the National Headache Foundation. Okay, how do we collaborate and integrate with these key players? And then in like close to 90 days, she became the foremost expert in this space as a result of controlling that messaging and really creating that community of people of women that suffer chronic debilitating migraine. And so going back to Emily, I met her at a mastermind and she was selling contracts to to first-time entrepreneurs, privacy policies, terms of service. And after talking with her, it became very clear to me that she was so charismatic. I was just like, you're like Judge Judy if Judge Judy had purple hair and said fuck all the time. And I was just like, you know what? I was like, how could I sell you into a market? And I was like, what would I need to do? Very, very similar to the fashion industry. Would I need to put around you in order for a community to to embrace you and to recommend you to other people? And so we found that she really loved pop culture. She's like, if I could just watch the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills all day and talk to people about it, I would. She loves like the Britney Spears conservatorship. She really loved the intersection of pop culture and legal. She was a former deputy district attorney in Los Angeles for 15 years or 17 years now. And I was just like, you know what? I want to create a YouTube channel with you where you essentially, instead of sports commentary, you do legal commentary. And I was like, and I want you to talk about like the laws that govern our lives through pop culture, thus teaching about legal literacy at scale, but through things that people actually are consumed with. So people are really consumed with things that really have nothing to do with them because that's what the drama is. It's like Logan Paul and Prime and everybody's attention is everywhere. But what if you grabbed the attention where it was at and said, yeah, I know you're looking at this, but let's talk about the law that governs what's happening right here. And so she since then in the past couple of years, she's the the most she has the most live concurrent viewers of any streamer on YouTube that's not a gamer. 
So when she goes live, she regularly has 10, 20,000 live concurrent viewers. Wow. And when she's streaming a court case, she has anywhere from 100,000 to 300,000 live concurrent viewers. And that's 30 times, 40 times, 50 times more than mainstream media can get on YouTube because they just don't have that same sort of attention grab anymore because they're so broad. It's an old kind of like way that they go about thinking about live streaming now. They're not catering to people's specific interests. They're just broad mainstream media, which has a place, but YouTube is a different machine, the way the algorithm works. And so, yeah, she, during the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case, like I said, she had over 300,000 live concurrent viewers. And now she is the go-to legal analyst for pop culture content. So she regularly is on MSNBC. She's on Entertainment Tonight. What I find is that... If I am fascinated by somebody and I feel like when it comes to education, because again, going back to my core values, I love people that are able to facilitate nuanced conversations at scale that make people a better person. Like if they're owning their attention and people are watching them, are they making this person more informed? Are they making them when they get off, they feel like that was a good use of my time. I feel empowered to do something or I feel empowered to to make a better decision in my life or have a better understanding of how something works in the world. And I find that I'm really drawn to those people. So when I find a client now that I'm just like, Ooh, what you're doing has big implications in the world. I immediately latch onto them and I'm just like, let me build a world around you. So that's what my brand management agency does now. So one of our avalanches or things that we think is obviously the future is called efficacious edutainment. And what you described so eloquently were the outcomes that you wanted people to achieve by watching one of your creators. And also that you created an edutainment element that was both education and entertaining at the same time. And then it's now very clear to us that that is the, basically the only way or like for the formula for it's pretty much the only way learning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because people's attention, people like when I think of people's attention and where it's at, you really have to put your ego aside because the biggest thing that a lot of experts are doing now is they're like, well, I'm qualified. I have degrees. I have this. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter if you don't know how to grab somebody's attention where it is at and essentially introduce yourself through something that they care about and then talk about what you want to talk about. One of my seven C's is collaboration. Who currently owns the attention span of your given audience? And what are you doing that's deserving of their attention to where you can make sense of it? So with Emily, people love listening about the Britney Spears conservatorship. So they're finding Emily through something that they want to learn about. And they're being introduced to Emily through somebody who's providing entertaining, informative, but also establishing like, what does a conservatorship mean? What do the laws look like in California? What is she up against? Now that she's getting divorced, what does a divorce look like with somebody who is formerly in a conservatorship? What do her financials look like? What does she really have to look at? And so people were like, wow, I didn't even, I didn't know that I was going to learn about finance. I didn't know that I was going to learn about how law works in California with conservatorship. And so she's teaching all of these principles through Britney Spears. Yeah. And the other <laughs> like, thing that struck me about what you said is the first thing that stuck out to you about her was her charisma. And it's yeah. like, that's the key element here. If you're going to be, it, to, to have all the other pieces for the efficacious edutainment, you need to have someone charismatic delivering that. That's how the attention is grabbed. Ultimately, it's through that parasocial connection that people form with that audience. 
when you look at like Andrew Huberman, obviously he's ridiculously good looking. We can just say that on record. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he has like those professor vibes, but he also has like, these tattoos going down that he has to cover up all the time. There's this mysterious nature of him. But all that aside, he's providing what he's providing at scale to people. Like he's a Stanford professor of neuroscience and ophthalmology. And he's helping people kind of like biohack and really figure out what they need to do. And he's saying, go out in the morning and be in nature, be in the sun, and that will reset your circadian rhythm. Pharma doesn't like that because that doesn't involve a pill. (laughs) That doesn't involve a protocol that involves money. That's not going to work for them. And so when I look at the future of content creation and creators, it's people that are also like, we're just really giving great information that is, is helping people live better lives. And people are are seeing the results of that by doing those protocols and being like, wow, you know what? I do feel better. And this is something that was free. I recently did a collaboration with them where they flew me out to Aquarium of the Pacific. And I have a program or a content campaign called Interview with an Octopus, where I thought it'd be really cool to go around to aquariums. And because a lot of people said, like, I'm afraid of the octopus. A lot of people are afraid of them. They think they bite. They think they're suckers. When they, they suck on you, they have teeth in them. These are all things that there are, that aren't true. And so it's like, let's go firsthand, meet an octopus. I'll play with it. I'll call it a squishy puppy dog, you know, and just really introduce this creature to people at scale, wherever they're at. And so I started doing that and, and Meta saw that and they're like, hey, can we fly a film crew out and do a story around this? Can we do a story around Octonation? you keep people on the platform in a way that best represents our platform. And so they flew me out, they did a documentary, we can put it in the show notes. And it was really the story of this kid having a dream for something to happen, creating on Facebook and connecting underwater photographers, scientists, all these people that can now move, collectively move the soul of an octopus forward through creating educational resources Facebook saw that and they were just like, we want all over this, right? And so I find that with any any service provider that we work with, be it our CRM to do our emails through any service provider that we use, we've pretty much done like a campaign with them or been a testimonial because how we're using their product is something that they want to get behind. They're like, this is really cool. How are you using email? This is really cool. How are you using Instagram? We have a Patreon. Patreon has featured us on, on them. It's really easy to kind of be spotlit when you're providing such extreme value. And it's also fun and educational because you're almost like a marketing campaign on a silver platter. You know, when I go anywhere as Octonation, this entity, you have National Geographic that's just like, I want a part of that. What you're doing is really cool. Can we hire you and consult with you to do XYZ? BBC Blue Planet. Hey, can we do an email in your community so that we can get behaviors of specific species all over the world? You know, there's a lot of different entities that now see the value and kind of what we're doing because we're not just providing a great value from an educational standpoint, but we also have this behemoth as it relates to social media reach. So they're like, hey, they want in on this now. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. Okay, so let me shift gears here. How would you reimagine the middle and high school experience? What would you look for? I, I remember... I thought of myself as like a seven-year-old back in that library and what would I have needed there in order to continue my love affair with the ocean and the octopus because I lost it. Honestly, when I was in middle school, I was just like, the whole world's screwed. I got, I became very nihilistic and I was just like, no, ever, the world is burning. All these animals are going extinct. I spun out of control. 
And so I was like, okay, what would I need? And so I developed this curriculum called Octopus Superhero Academy. And it was a series of workshops that demonstrated how octopuses were the superheroes of the sea. And as they go through this academy that has all these short little exercises, I thought of attention spans. I had a very short attention span when I was a kid. I'd need to get in, get out, learn something cool, have the messaging be very clear, and then move on. And so it included a little stamp card that people can stamp once they go to the workshops. The first time I unveiled this and I did this, the kids were like freaked out. And I remember that next year that I came to like STEM Fest, they're like, Octonation is here. All the kids like ran in. And even though they had done it before, we tried to change it up just a little bit. They wanted to do it again. And they were just like, the octopus is my favorite animal. And they were so legitimately fired up about this animal and we were just thought, okay, what resources can we create to continue that? And so we're now in the process of developing programming and thinking of that ascension model of like, how can we give them a set of flashcards? How can we entertain them online through TikTok and Instagram? How can we have an adopt an octopus program where they can adopt an octopus, bring it home with them. And then every single month they get an email as a letter from the octopus that teaches about its environment, about its world, what it's up to. And there's ways in there that we can continue that that relationship with that child that just makes them go, the octopus is just something that's followed me around that has the best marketing. <laughs> They're not going to say that, but it's just like, I feel like I can confidently stay stay in the mind of that kid in a way that's compelling to them, entertaining to them, but also highly educational. And so yeah. that's how I'm thinking of attention. I'm not thinking of it from like, you know, uh, YouTubers who are, who are doing crazy, you know, I don't know, fights or or this or that. I'm like, there's a way that you can do it and, and it be educational, informative and fun and not be just mind numbingly pointless. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, so, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's how I would reimagine it. It's just thinking when you're thinking of it and almost like maybe you could say thinking of it as a marketer, but thinking of it as like a compassionate educator who understands marketing from the standpoint of like, you have to stay and figure out because another one of the C's is content. And so in that C, I say, how are you deserving of attention on a daily basis? And that means you have to come up with compelling programming and content that is legitimately deserving of attention. And if you say, oh, it's deserving of attention because I created it and I think I'm great, that's that's not gonna hold up because you actually have to hold attention. And you can see that through social media. You can see that through comments. So when I'm developing programming, I'm almost thinking as if, like I'm the Netflix of the yes. people, how am I creating compelling programming for my audience in a way that keeps them coming back and saying they recorded another one that just makes my life better. So yeah. that's kind of that's such a good back. framing because so often it's like in a school setting, it's like we have these kids, they're a captive audience. Instead, thinking of them as consumers who have the ability to take their attention elsewhere is just a simple framing device that I think would benefit so many. They're not captive anymore. Yes, uh, totally. Their, exactly. Their cell phone. Exactly. And so they're entirely not captive unless you take that away from them, which I guess a lot of them have. But that doesn't mean that their soul is there. It doesn't mean yes. that their attention is exactly. truly there. Like you have still have to solve for all those really neat problems. You can't say that they don't exist. They clearly exist. Yep. Okay. So we want to ask you obviously, the future is the name of the pod. So we're talking to people who are visionaries like you who can see things that the rest of us haven't been able to make out yet. So looking out 10, 20 years in the future, what's something that to you is obvious about the next decade that most people don't realize? 
I remember being in New York and going to a modeling agency for the first time. And there was so many middlemen. I feel like there's a lot of middlemen involved with a lot of different things. You look at the modeling agency, there's a model manager that represents the talent, but pretty soon that talent is going to be able to reach their audience directly. And they're going to be able to form a community around them to the point where that, that agency can exist in the same way that it exists because we're not considering subjective measures of, of things. We're looking at really objectively at the world. When you look at mainstream media, they're like a middleman right now. The government is like a middleman right now. Like there's a lot of things that are kind of being decentralized and changed up. And so I think that you have to consider if you're a service provider, if you're a brand, if you're a whatever, you truly have to think of your customer or your the person that follows you, their attention and act within their best interest because it could be anywhere. And so if you think of it in a way that's like holistically, like you really feel deserving of their attention, I feel like those are the people that are going to own the attention in the future is like when I look at people like Andrew Huberman, even like Joe Rogan has the most attention and you could like, I could totally break that down for, for you, but it's just a measure of understanding and being really compassionate as it relates to people's attention. And I use that word a lot just because I'm constantly thinking about it. And so I would say in the future, it's just like, if you're a middleman right now and you're listening and you're a brand, how can you act within the best interests of your customers or your whoever you're working with so that you're a partner with them, that you, you generally understand their attention could be anywhere, but you have it. How do you make the best of it? And how do you really prove that you're deserving of it? Yep. And now last one for you. Okay. So Caitlin has this list called my younger self and it's a, a compilation of the timeless books that she would tell her younger self to read. So can you give us one book that you'd want to share with your younger self? If I could have understood it as a kid, it would be, there's a book that I love called Games People Play by Dr. Eric Byrne. And as a neurodivergent kid who like was so frustrated by social interactions and I was naive to like how the world worked. After I read that book and understood, I was like, oh, there's power dynamics at play. There are all these different things that are happening. There's a game that's being played in a lot of different environments. I feel like that was the book helped me professionally because prior to that, I don't know why anybody does anything. It was like very hard to understand, but that school of thought transactional analysis really helped me out. Awesome. And anywhere to, for people who listening want to follow you, get more information, anything to plug? Yeah. Octonation. Yeah. So just go check out Octonation on Instagram, read some of our content. And now that you've heard this, this recording, look at it from the frame of if you're an educator listening, if you're a brand listening, look at how I really educate there and look at it from a place of it's all strategic, how I even lay out the first line of the text versus asking, hey, if you read this far, comment, uh, giant Pacific octopus. There's reasons why I do everything and it's all to educate and to have people be able to reiterate a fact about this animal to their friend. And so I think that by just you going there and you looking at it from a strategic standpoint that you could extract value from it for whatever you're doing. Well, awesome. thank you so much. This is, this is amazing conversation and I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us.